Hello, everybody. Welcome to In Discovery We Trust, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. This is episode three, where we will be discussing the fourth episode of Discovery, The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry. I am your host, Kevin, and I am joined with... Ethan! And uh, before we get started on the episode, I understand you were at New York Comic Con this past weekend. I was. So tell us about this. I will. So I was fortunate enough to go to New York Comic Con, and Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to um, be able to go to the Star Trek Discovery panel. Okay. And... You discovered things, I presume. I I discovered some things, and I brought back some insights to share with you and our listeners. Um, And I think it also will give us a chance to talk about something that we haven't talked about yet. Yep. Um... Now, I gotta say, by the way, this was a big this was a big weekend for the cast because they went to Comic Con that weekend, and then after that, they actually went to the Paley Center for Media Arts. Oh, I love have that. an interview with them as well. I don't think I haven't seen clips of that yet. I don't even know if it's available online yet. But they went to that immediately after Comic Con, and then you saw them on Saturday or Sunday. I saw them on Saturday afternoon, and then most of them made an appearance on After Trek the next day. So the cast was sort of uh, everywhere. This past weekend, the show's a the show's a big deal right now. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, this was a really well attended panel. This was outside of the convention center. It was at the Madison Square Garden Theater. Yep. Um, which is underneath Madison Square Garden. I never knew it was there, but you know, this is where they were having the Walking Dead panel uh, later that night. So, who from the cast and the crew? Who from the cast and crew was uh, in attendance? Well, you had the executive producers, uh, Akiva Goldsman. Uh, Alex Kurtzman, who mm-hmm. had some great insights from him, Heather Caden, Gretchen Berg, and Aaron Harberts, mm-hmm. uh, along with a real, like a lot of the cast. We had Sonequa Martin-Green, Jason Isaacs, who I think got the largest applause of anyone. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, Doug Jones was there. Mary Chifo. Shazad Latif, who we've not met yet. Not yet, no. Um, Anthony Rapp. Mary Wiseman and Wilson Cruz. Now, as far as characters go, if you're not familiar with all of the, uh, we had Tilly. There's yep. One of those actresses is Tilly. One of them is the security officer. We all know who they are. I think I don't. <laughs> right? You don't know who they are? No. <laughs> um. So. Moderated by. Okay, so this, this was a big deal. Brings in something interesting here. The I. So I've been seeing some of the. Hate as, as we talked about last time, we said our little haters corner where we talked yes. about some of the complaints. A lot of them were from before the series was yep. even out. So now we've seen some. The series is out. We've seen some complaints, and um, one of the complaints that I'm seeing is, and it's just a common complaint throughout sci-fi. I'm also a comic book reader, and it comes up a lot in uh, the comics community. Yep. But um, we are seeing people complaining about the cast. Oh, there was some, um, yeah, there was some controversy in the beginning, like when the first trailer came out, le- that legit showed footage of people sort of complaining about the uh, diversity of the show, which kind of surprised me because that's what Trek's all about. Trek has always been about that, yeah. which is very strange, yes. This is, I mean, this is akin to the Black Stormtrooper controversy, quote unquote, that was going on well, a you couple know, of years ago. Not, I, that's right, I forgot about that. Um, and look, not to get too, not to get political, but I feel like it's unfortunately a symptom of sort of the era that we find us, the political climate that we find ourselves in, sadly. I, I think so. Um, uh, so I'm looking at some comments here. One of them says, uh, it's totally leftist 
PC correct, which if you were to say that out, it would be, they're saying, it's totally leftist, politically correct, correct. This is something that has come up, and I feel that we sort of commented on it by not commenting on it in our yeah. first episode, yeah. where uh, the series opened with uh, uh, two women of color, uh, an Asian woman and yeah. an African-American woman, um, running a starship on an away mission on their own, saving this planet. And um, doing an awesome job, by the way. Like, it was... You know, despite how short they, you know, we saw them together on the in the first two episodes, I I was like, I would love to, I want to see this as a series. Like they were two fantastic. Because I gotta say, I like Lorca, but if we're gonna have a contest, I'm kind of team Philippa Giorgio right now. Right, and Philippa yeah. Giorgio is more in the model of the captains we're used to. Yeah, she's a type of right. captain like Picard that you would trust ex- completely in anything, and you well, would put your life in their hands and feel completely safe. And here's the thing, you know, this is kind of a, I guess you kind of, now that you say that, it kind of makes me think, given that that's how it was, you know, you make the distinction, and that's how the show began, that was sort of like maybe Discovery's way of saying, here's Old Trek, now we're going to break this and take you off in a, new, in a different direction. Well, so that's We're going to break with the existing formula. So that's one thing that Kurtzman uh, actually said. So I was glad to hear this. We talked on the first episode about our feeling that the first two episodes were so removed from the rest of the show. Right. And Kurtzman said that the that was intentional. Yeah. And the idea was that um, Michael Burnham would have the rug pulled out from under her in her experience in Starfleet. And the viewers would have the same experience. Right. As they would get used to one sort of situation one crew they would have that suddenly yanked away so they wanted to put the viewer in the place of burnham and have well, us feel as burnham felt i don't know how successful they were well, I mentioned but that in the last good. episode because I, I do feel like we are kind of experiencing it the same way she is um yeah she's definitely yeah. our guide through this world um Absolutely. so the interesting thing also about this panel so it also it was um, moderated by Dr. Mae Jemison, the first African-American woman in space. Yep. And huge Star Trek fan. Huge Star Trek fan. Totally. Yep. Said how she watched it when she was young. It got her interested in science and all this. Yep. But what I really got from the panel was that they are all about this and they are very proud and yep. they're celebrating the fact that it is such a diverse show with all these different points of view. Yeah. And I think it... it does come across and i think it fits with trek and it works really really well um kurtzman also pointed out that the writer's room is made up um 50 women 50 men because he said he with his show with a female um lead it's really important that he gets a female perspective into the writing of it right which makes a lot of sense so some of the interesting things that came up so we talked about how TV now has to be different. You cannot have the things stay the same, um, sort of the status quo each episode. We need longer stories, longer arcs. Um, and Kurtzman made this very interesting point. He said that if the original series was made today um, and Kirk had to get over the death of Edith Keeler in City on the Edge of Forever, mm. it would have taken an entire season for him to get over that. It would not have happened in one episode, and he would have just been fine when you came. Yes, yeah, so you're saying next in the next week. episode he was totally fine. Like it was, right. like, it was as if it never happened. Exactly. Yes. And he's saying, uh, 
in television today, we would expect the next episode, we would see him dealing with that yeah. death and then getting over it and then revisiting it. Well, it's interesting you mention that because, you know, the, the famous two-parter on Next Generation, The Best of Both Worlds, where Picard is assimilated by the Borg, you know, I feel like a lot of people, that to me is sort of, it's not really a two, it's a trilogy in a way. Because the episode after that, the it's called Family, the Borg are not in it. But it deals with Picard's sort of af- the aftermath of all that and how Picard needs to get off the ship and just sort of get away and sort of find himself and sort of remember and sort of, yeah, just find himself again. Mm. And, you know, and to your point, that's a, because that is a hugely traumatic experience as it was for Kirk. And you can't just make it okay by the next episode. Yeah. And, and granted, and, they don't mention how much time, they may not mention how much, I mean, the next episode of Trek of the original, it could be a month later for all we know. Right. right. But... You have to assume it's in a span of a few days or something like that. But you want to see some sort of fallout from that event. Yes, and that yeah. just wasn't television yeah. at the time. Right. And, and this was sort of their explanation for why they're not yeah. doing the episodic right. beginning, middle, and end for each episode mm. um, type of story. And to your point about Next Generation, many people pointed that as some of the greatest episodes of Next Generation. So right. and, I think and it's that, always good. That, to me, was a big deal in Next Gen when they did that episode, you know, dealing with the aftermath of all that. You know, because they just as well, you know, would have just ignored it normally. But the fact that they did one more episode to kind of focus on that, I thought, to me, that was always a huge deal. Yeah, the, there's yeah. not much. I mean, Kirk didn't suffer any trauma or, or you yeah. know, residual mental effects from his experiences. He very much was yeah. just up and at him, back in the saddle. Um, uh, they also went into depth about the science. So the fact that they felt it was important for Star Trek to be rooted in science, and they talked to these leading... Um, mushroom researchers, mycelial researchers, uh, about astral mycology, as they mm-hmm. call it, which is this idea that you're moving through this biological matter in the universe. And they said this is all very much based on these new theories about how on the Earth there is this sub-layer of mycelium, I believe it's called, in the mushroom family, that it is all connected. One mushroom is connected to another mushroom uh, you know, on the other side of the country. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the idea. It's all these yeah. networks running under the ground. Right. Um, to Stamets' point the previous week about that, you know, when he mentions the under the network. Yes. Yeah. And they even quoted the, the researcher that they worked with uh, as saying, mushrooms will, can and will change the world in the future. And um, Jason Isaacs was asked so it opened it up for audience questions and uh jason isaacs was asked like where he fits in the line of captains and he dodged the question of course he did completely i don't doubt that one bit now at first i thought well because he doesn't want to get on the fans bad side yeah i think that of course you don't want to put yourself in with these iconic characters picard and kirk but the other part of me thought Maybe we're going to learn a lot more about this. The, we don't. We barely even scratched the surface of what Lorca is. We're going to find out so much more that you can't. He can't even say. Although it's funny you mention that because if you follow like William Shatner on Twitter, he constantly like trolls Jason Isaacs. Like, really, like, all, that's like funny. all the time. They just they they are such shits to each other. It's so great to watch. That's funny. Yeah, but with Shatner, I feel like there's a there's a grain of uh, of course of truth in it. Of course, of course, there is. <laughs> 
if it were um if it were Cisco, I think it would be heartfelt and um yeah. very po- poetic. And just very profound and just not knowing what the hell he's talking about. Yes. Right? Um, I watched him interviewed in that movie, The Captains, and I had no idea what he was saying. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. I got yeah. it, man. I got it. Mm. I was right there with him. <laughs> I think he's high on mushrooms. No, he's just a free spirit. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, just generally the vibe, um, it was just really enthusiastic. The people yeah. were pumped. Um, packed hall for that? Like Totally was, packed uh, hall. Totally yeah. packed hall. Um they were just very, very excited to be there, and they were having a lot of fun. Um, they made sure that everyone gave a standing ovation to the moderator, given her history of right. being in space, and first African-American in space. They were really celebrating that. Um, and, yeah, they're having fun. They're, they're definitely loving what they're doing. Well, I think you know, it's in good hands. It's great to have a Trek show on the air now, during on the air, as we're in this sort of, like, nerd as like nerds and kind of like pop culture are like really the forefront of everything you know there's convention there's a, some sort of comic convention every week somewhere for something yes you know and you know when enterprise went off the air in 05 like i feel like it just wasn't as present as it as it is now and i love the fact that like you know every, geeks are like geeks and nerds are cool now right you know? and it's also interesting that i think that this this Whatever we want to call it, this pop culture embrace of yeah. these these um, struggling for the right term. I don't want to say you know I sci-fi know, like and, and comics nerds, you know, and whatnot. Just, you know, yeah. um, I feel that this wouldn't be here or wouldn't look the same if it wasn't for Star Trek. Yeah. Star Trek really built that community around it that nothing had really done before. It's, there were fans, but there wasn't. Right. Well, it's it's a strange parallel because you know the when the original series was canceled, of course, the conventions began in the seventies, and that ultimately, I think, led to the you know, and that that had a huge hand in like you know, make and you know the reruns of the show obviously made the show so popular that it ended up being a huge factor in bringing it back. And right. I feel like since the end of Enterprise, that sort of in a way like history kind of repeated itself. I think you know, in a in a very maybe minor way, but. Yeah, I think it's 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 nice to see Trek back in the the, the thick of all of this. Yeah, this sort yeah. of pop culture explosion that I feel that it had a hand in starting or planting the seeds of. So Sunday's episode, the butcher's knife cares not for the lamb's cry. Uh, that's a fucking mouthful. Let me tell you. Um, what? First of all, I love the name of the episode. It has a very original series, sort of Deep Space Nine sound to it and it has a very original series sort of deep space nine vibe to it which i really like um so what did you think of this one what are your sort of initial thoughts on this on this episode my initial thoughts um i liked it i liked that we were getting deeper into sort of the major um uh situation on discovery yeah I like that we're we're getting deeper into that mystery. The mystery is sort of unfolding very quickly. Right. Uh, at least one layer of it. I expect probably yeah. more. But what I really liked was seeing Discovery in action. The ship in action. We finally got to see it in action. Yeah. We've seen some action. Yeah. We've seen the away team fight the space bear. Right. And we've seen uh, Vulcan martial arts. Yeah. But uh, we haven't seen the ship in action and the crew working to, you know, save people. Yeah. 
what and what you know what I want to mention because you mentioned the the space bears as, as we're calling it, um, the the very I, I neglected to mention it in the last episode, but um, you know that that space bear that they had on board the Glen, we see it make a, an appearance at the very end of the episode. Lorca now has it in a very right. strange kind of lab. Yes, he's got it in just kind of force field because yeah. it can tear apart a ship's hull, so um, somehow he knew how to reinforce And that. among the artifacts he has, he has a fossil of a Gorn. Oh, I which is that. Which I thought was very, very I, odd. Yeah. Was it the skeleton? Yeah, that, I, yeah, it was the skeleton. Okay. It was the skeleton of the Gorn. Um, it's interesting. I saw the skeleton, yeah. and I thought, what is that? Is it's it a, a primate? It's a Gorn. It's a Gorn. He's got a Gorn, yeah. yeah. Um, so... You know, very, very interesting episode, you know, and it's, it's, it's crazy. Like, unlike previous Trek shows, like, this one is just... Trek shows generally get better by the season. This one is getting better by, by the episode. I agree. I agree um, with that. I was sort of went from lukewarm on the first two to yeah. then, like, kind of really getting into the, the, yeah. the third, and now I'm, I'm definitely sold. So, um, you said at Comic-Con that they showed a clip of this episode. They did, like I got to watch... They showed the, the opening when they got, they get on the bridge and it's they're at Red Alert fighting the Klingon yes. of Prey. and the threat ganglia and the... Threat in ganglia. the... Yep. The threat ganglia on Saru? Kelpian? What? The lift? On the turbo lift? Turbo lift. Yeah. That's what I couldn't find. <laughs> okay, yeah, so that, that scene, um, but... I thought that that I really enjoyed that um, because, you know, first off, I, I got to see it on a big screen. Right. And this was a big screen. This was, you know, this was great. It was like seeing it in the theater. And it, it didn't. Here's the thing: it fit. The cinematography is really good, and right. it it's it was seemed perfectly natural being on a screen in a. Well, I mean, like the show this. was produced like it's a movie, which I mean, this you know, I, I've always had this. You know, what I tell people if they want to get into the show, because I actually, this is the first Trek show I recommend to people who are not fans of the franchise, right? But I, I know some people who love the Abrams films, and I say, you know, it's done like, it's it's very cinematic like the Abrams films in the sense that you could watch it and almost mistaken it. Or it's like, oh, hey, this looks like those Trek movies I've seen. I want to watch this one, you know? Right. And I think that's, I mean, I, I don't know how anyone could complain about good cinematography no 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 not at all um uh, people are so <laughs> they they get to the bridge they're fighting Klingons and then we find out it's just a simulation yes which yes. I feel like we've seen that exact scene on we Star have. Trek before where it's a simulation one minor thing I want to point out because you know outside of this I'm a graphics designer and I you know I, I love all this stuff but the red alert graphic is exactly the same as it was in the in the early movies in the Kirk, uh, in the first three like original series films, the red alert. There was a red alert graphic oh, okay. that appears on that. Discovery, and um, it's done exactly as it is um, in the first few films, which I think is pretty. That's a nice touch. Nice, which I think is pretty amazing. Um, oh yes. Yeah. So, um, so it's so it looks to be that the Klingons are back this week. Um, yeah, you know, we saw them briefly last or, week, but now they are sort of the. Uh, well, they're at least back in, uh, yeah. you know, video game form right now. In video game form, but we um, have Birds of Prey, which we've not seen or referenced Birds of Prey. yet, and they, and they are new designs this time. They so again with the Klingons, we have not yet seen you know an existing uh, Klingon design aside right. from their uh, their emblem. So the Birds of Prey certainly are 
Yeah. Similar in the broad strokes of the yeah. design. So let me just mention this on the Klingons themselves. I, I, I don't recall who I was talking to about this, but some one, somebody I was talking to had a really good... Because I know that the Klingon redesign has not really... Fans have not fully embraced it. A lot of yeah. people have complained about it. Um, but well, a friend of mine had a really good explanation for it. They said, you know, the Klingons have been redesigned to the point where they're like, they're actually frightening again. Mm, I see you your know, point. They're, they're much more alien-like, but like, the, because if they were the Klingons that you were used to seeing, you as a you as a as a viewer would not really be. You're like, oh, it's the Klingons. It's the Klingons. I'm not. I'm not scared yeah. of them. You know. But these are like brand new. They're just newly designed, and they look. They become alien again. They're alien again, and they look very, very intimidating. Definitely, I think, and very and much more. Uh, you know, a bit more terrifying this this uh, time out. So. You know, just kind of on that note, uh, you know, I was a huge fan of that sort of like comment that a friend of mine made. So I was like, yeah. I, yeah, I totally that makes agree. a lot of sense. Although I was sort of happy that we didn't see any Klingons last episode. No. You, what, you weren't happy? Or you were? I was happy about it. I didn't yeah. realize it until just now that we didn't see any Klingons. But right. we did not see any Klingons. So in this episode, we come to find out that the space, the space bear that Lorca has, um, he, Lorca wants Burnham to kind of research it and try to learn all she can about this thing. Yes. Right. For the sole purpose the sole, of weaponizing for it. For weaponizing it. Because he saw what it did to the other ship. He saw what it did to the Klingons. Right. And he thinks he can get um, some technology from its claws that could rip through a hull. Yeah. From its teeth or something to that mm-hmm. was able to take out the, the Klingons. Fully armed. I believe what he said is they took out 12 fully armed Klingons. Right. Without getting a scratch which, on. which was on the Glen. We yes. can assume. You know. Um, so, um, we see more Klingons this week. We're now back to the old battle site from the, uh, Binary Stars. Where um, the albino Klingon is still just hanging out in his broken ship. Right. Bro- busted ship. Um, and they need to get the ship back up to power. So what do they do? They go to the abandoned Shenzo. Because they're going to get technology. But right. the... Albino has to be convinced of this, right? Because he thinks it would be blasphemy to mix with their technology. And disturbingly, so they mention the fate of Philippa Georgia. They ate her. Yeah, they he... ate oh, Georgia. God, I missed that. That's what you're talking. About. Yeah, you said. You, I remember you smiled when you picked the matter from her skull. Right. I was like, oh, I was like, oh my god. Has that been established that that's what Klingons do with their enemies? I, I I cannot recall a time in Trek history where the Klingons have eaten. Other species. It, like, it works you know, for me. Like, if this were like the Herogen on Voyager, the hunting species, then yes, I would get that. But like, I, I, you know, and any maybe a listener can tell me, you know, via email or something like that, but I, I, I cannot think of a time where a Klingon has admitted that they've eaten, you know, yeah. somebody after battle or something like that. I think, though, it fits really well with, again, like this making the Klingons, trying at least to make the Klingons terrifying. Yeah. Them. And look, you know, I, I will confess, um, I know that this season focuses heavily on the Klingons and the Klingon War, but, you know, we're only in episode four, but I'm finding the Klingon sections of the of these episodes to be the least interesting part of the, of the series. Me too. And I yeah. feel that in this episode, they're developing this subplot of there's a power struggle yeah. between Tukumva's, uh appointed successor, this albino. Yeah. Um, and he has, um, on his side, this female Klingon, I believe. Yeah. And she is from a royal house and, but so her being with him is sort of, uh, like a 
legitimizing force for mm-hmm. him. Um, but of course, Klingons being as they are, the some of the other leaders of the other houses are trying to cut him out. Yeah. Um, so I, I at least there's something to latch onto there now because right. we can I I I can root for the albino. Yep. So uh, Commander Landry, who is the um, you know chief of security, we met her in the in last week's episode, uh, comes down to pay Michael a visit in the lab to get more information on this creature, which they have now decided to call Ripper. And you know Burnham points out that you know you. The thing may not be aggressive. It may just be defending itself. Or like, you know... Right? Yeah, so... She, she points out that um, its behavior... There's nothing in its behavior... Go ahead. She points out to suggest that there's nothing in its behavior um, to suggest that it would attack except in self-defense. Uh, and also, she she points out that you cannot judge this creature on one episode in its past, which, of course, making right. parallels between herself and her own episode, um, it's the Battle of the Binary Stars, right? where she is, is her reputation is made on this one situation. But this conversation between the two of them, to me, really invokes classic Trek, where, like, you know, Michael is, you know, she's the scientist in this sense, and she's like, you know, this is a life form, this is an alien life form that we don't know anything about. And you're just assuming that, you know, it's it's some kind of dangerous creature when really it could just be in self-defense. Yes, I thought... to weaponize it. And it's like, this is your classic, to me, your classic Trek, you know... Yes, absolutely. So yeah. you you, you are, have an ethical dilemma and yep. you have um, people are in conflict over this ethical dilemma. One wants to stick with yeah. this idea of, um, you know, treating all living things with respect and dignity and... Yep. Someone else wants to, um, you know, take advantage of, mm-hmm. and you really have Michael on the side of that classic Trek vision of right. all life is is important and should be respected. So um, we now cut back to Lorca in his dimly lit ready room eating um, squid, squid or octopus. It's one of them, squid or octopus, I think. Uh-huh. Which, Not fortune cookies. Which is utterly disgusting, in my opinion. <laughs> um, uh, well, one of the other interesting things, so we're in his dark room. He mentions when he has the space bear. Yeah. Uh, I think he invented Black Alert because it darkens everything. <laughs> he works better in the dark. Yeah. And it just stuck. Right. Um, so he says that the space bear has an aversion to light, just like me. Just like... So I don't know if we'll see more comparisons. <laughs> he says it in a very Bruce Wayne way. Just like me. <laughs> um... I don't know if we'll see more of these parallels between him and the space bear. So he gets a hail from a Starfleet Admiral who mentions that there is a uh, mining colony under attack by the Klingons and that the Discovery is the only, as, as always, the only ship in range <laughs> to, to, go, uh, to go save them. All right, well, I guess soon Discovery um, will be we'll in range of everything. Right. So she mentions, is the ship ready to jump yet? And he says yes. And of course, when he goes back to talk to Stamets, he says no. Right. So... Um, so, you know, he told me, you know, he says, you, you, you told me you, we could. And he says, no, we can't do it just yet. And um, so, obviously, you know, they have to run a test to see if it's actually possible. And they're kind of going over some of the technology they retrieved from the Glen. But, but Stamets isn't really sure what the technology is or, how, what they, or what exactly they were doing with it. Yeah, he says it's missing uh, some type of a supercomputer beyond any capabilities right. that Starfleet currently has. Which is very odd. So... 
Um, they, so to much to, uh, you know, um, Loka's insistence, they decide to take the ship and, um, do a jump and see if it actually works. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the, another interesting thing with that call from Starfleet, again, mm-hmm. this is a continuing, um, mystery for me or, or something I wonder about. How much does Starfleet know what's really going on on Discovery? I mean, obviously the Admiral knows about the drive. Um, but aside from that, yeah, I do wonder about that. Yeah, and yeah. now it has been established that he Lorca is not completely honest with his mm. superior officers. Right. Um, right. We would never have seen Picard lie like that. So, so Lorca has the ship. Uh, they how he they, they test the uh, the drive, and the ship goes to black alert when they do when they test the drive. So, does that suggest last week? Or on the third episode, that they were in when they went to Blackwood the first time, when we were first aware of it as an audience, they were actually performing a warp test. I think so because have, you'd have to assume so. They said they were yeah. doing small jumps. Right, they were doing small jumps that were kind of useless. Yeah. Um. So they they take Discovery into this jump, and the interesting thing to me is that you see the saucer section spinning around. Yes. Um, which I don't see how that would affect the microbes. No, but it's cool. (laughs) It's cool. Okay. I mean, I'm sure it would, uh, make a nice pizza cutter. Um, (laughs) It already has. If you go to Thinky. I do have one. Um, we're looking for sponsors, Thinky. And strangely enough, as the ship is getting ready to power, is getting ready to power up to do this, make this jump. Um, Ripper is suddenly, Ripper is reacting very strangely. Yes. Ripper, the space bear. Thank you for, let's call it by the proper names. Yes. Ripper. Ripper. Um, he's, and, you know, Burnham no- is noticing that he's acting very, very strangely. Right, Burnham, so, very insightful, Yep, as always. The yep. scientist noticing everything. Mm-hmm. Discovery plant, uh, plants. Discovery, um, plots a course for Corbin 2. Unfortunately, they do, not, they do not arrive. Instead, they wind up in, on the, practically on the surface of a star. And I, I, it was a very, um, visually striking scene. It was. Um, it was it a was. quick little, little scene, but, um, I really liked that. Mm-hmm. And because of this uh, fuck-up, um, we are led to another scene, another confrontation between Lorca and Stamets, who, again, Stamets is the guy of science, the man of science, who really doesn't like that his scientific um, ideas are being are being weaponized, you know? And it's, again, it's kind of like with Ripper itself, Ripper, Ripper the creature itself, right? It is a life form that's being weaponized. Right. It's a, it's a strange kind of parallel between the two. And that's definitely, um, you know, where we're headed here. This this will be the ethical dilemma that, that's coming up. Right. And what I couldn't believe was that, um, you know, Lorca says to Stamets, well, then you can leave. And he says, well, if I leave, I'm going to take all this stuff with me. He goes, no, this is all the property of Starfleet. Right, which yeah. I doesn't surprise me. That was yeah. for him to think he could take his Starfleet research with him. Doesn't yeah. make any sense. So he's a very impetuous um, person. And so right, and so right after this, right, this is this is a scene in sickbay. And right after, right after this happens, you know, Lorca leaves sickbay, or no, excuse me, no, Stamets leaves sickbay, and Lorca does something extremely unbecoming. It's almost like a way to motivate the crew. He plays the distress call from that mining colony over the uh, on shipwide broadcast, so everybody can hear, everybody like, so the entire crew 
can hear everybody down on that planet suffering, crying out for help, and just really kind of the agony that they're all en- enduring. Yeah, so they really hammered it home with the repeated, uh, you know, images of the children. They right. sort of went a little overboard on that. I think the, not the not Lorca, but more like the writers. It and this too seems, much of the kids. And, you know, I, I've never seen a Starfleet captain try to do that to you know potentially. Mo- I feel like he did it more for Stamets' sake. Right, that makes sense, but, yeah. I but mean, the fact that the entire crew had to hear that, I'm like, oh my god, this is like really... Yeah. This is really tough. Yeah, I mean, I keep making these comparisons to Picard. I feel like Picard is the, the polar opposite of Lorca, but you could certainly imagine Picard, um, you know, having whoever he's going to consult on this into his ready room, and it's all very, you know, hashed out in private, and oh, yeah, make yeah, the yeah. decision, and then they go with it. Well, Picard was the, Picard was the diplomat. And so this is not something that, you know, you do, I, you know, and I got to say, you know, just to kind of deviate just slightly, I always wanted to see what kind of Captain Picard was during the Dominion War. We never saw anything like that. So I'd like to see, you know, because and since he was a diplomat, I'd like to see how he would have been, how he would have handled that war. We never actually see it from his point of view. And I think that would have been, you know, really interesting to see. I'm going to assume that he wore a vest and had a giant gun yeah. and got very, lifted a lot of weights. To Potentially. Um... So back in the lab, Chief of Security wants to lop off a claw from Ripper to figure out, so uh, Burnham can figure out why this thing likes to kill so much. And, you know, obviously Burnham is saying, no, I don't think it's a good idea. And I couldn't believe that this thing actually, you know, it killed her. It killed, it killed um, Landry, which I, I, and I really liked her. And I'm like, she's only been in two episodes and she's, and she's, she's gone already. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it was, it was that was definitely surprising. And yeah. did Burnham let it happen? Was did she kind of make that known? I mean, I don't know if Burnham Burnham had any sort of control over it. That's true. But she just kind of stood by and watched it happen. Yeah, well, there wasn't much she could do, but, but she was able to realize again her quick thinking in the moment that put the lights on very bright. The teacher is going to retreat to the darkness. Right. But in all fairness, Landry was also posing a threat to it. Yeah. You know, if and the creature was able to detect that. Right. Landry, I don't want to say had it coming, but she certainly put herself in a situation where that was possible. She did something very dumb. <laughs> Let's put it that way, I think. Yeah. And I think, again, we have this classic ethical setup where yeah. um, I've seen it so many times and I can't think of any of them, but it's sort of like, uh, I'll get... Whatever it is, I'll get it to work. I'll like mistreat it, and then it will do the thing I want. And then someone else right. comes along and is, well, actually, if you are nice to it, you will get better results. Uh-huh. Sort of that, and that's exactly what we um, we wind up with. Um, so Burnham figures out with um, manages to figure out with Ripper that the creature is very susceptible and um, very interested in the uh, mushroom sort of molecules, as we'll call them. Yeah, there's some connection between, yeah. as she noticed when they were doing the leap, right? Um, that Ripper was reacting. So right. she brings some of she brings, those she organisms. Brings some, she brings some of it in and, um, to, you know, lowers the force, so brings it in. The creature does not attack her at all. It's very interested in the sort of molecule, spores, I should well, they refer to them as spores. Spores, yeah. Which which forces her to bring up the uh, records from the Glen, and then we find out, and she's noticing that within the Glen, a lot of the damage done on the bulkheads, it's like a, it's like something kind of 
broke out of it. Like something was being, you know, sealed in and broke out. Yeah, she she definitely comes to the conclusion that this is not an aggressive creature. Right. It's a, it's being aggr- it's it's really um acting in self-defense. Yes. In a way. Um and so this creature was sort of they they believe that it entered the ship sort of in pursuit of these mushrooms. It wanted those mushrooms basically. Mm-hmm. Mushrooms or molecules would what I call them? Spores? Spores. I believe that uh, Stamets calls them spores. Yeah. So they let the creature loose in the in the uh, mushroom garden. And he, and you know, Ripper is really sort of like taking an interest in the spores. Yeah. And it feels very sort of like, you know, non-aggressive and just very sort of comforted where it is. So they figure out that there's, there is some kind of odd connection between between the creature and the uh, and the spores. And so... Um, as a result of that, there's a piece of technology from the Glen that's sitting in the spore chamber in engineering, which in the earlier part of the episode, um, uh, 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 Stamets, um, says to Lorca, I don't know what this is for. I don't know what this is. Um, but they managed to, you, to, to hook Ripper up to that thing. And it turns out Ripper is that supercomputer that they, supercomputer that they need. Right. And they're able to more um, accurately plot a course to where they need to go. So it's almost like the Glen had this idea, but they didn't, they didn't successfully, um, you know, get it working. Mm-hmm. Thus resulting in this thing, you know, killing everybody. Yes. I don't know if it still explains why everybody was deformed, but... Right. Perhaps still that question. type yeah. of a, um, yeah. a disruption in a leap. Yeah. Um, but the, and clearly, Ripper is in great distress when they're doing this, right? Which is the part, um, you know, where again this ethical dilemma comes up, right? Um, you know, and I think it, for me it's hard to watch because you know it's a peaceful creature from what we now know, and I don't and like to is, see peaceful and, creatures being right. mistreated. And this is very unlike Starfleet to do that because Starfleet's all again about seeking out new life, right? Right. Um, so. And really, for the first time, we get to see Discovery, as you mentioned, sort of in action now. Yes, and, and I think this is a great scene. Um, yeah. We have we have a, a attack of the Klingons on this um, mining community. Right. And we really get to see the potential for this technology, which is right. to be able to instantly almost... Um, you know, just appear wherever. So they appear the in things, front of these ships and they take them out, the Klingons, as they go in for a bombing raid on the right. mining facility. And as Lorca says, you know, if we can get this technology perfected, we can basically, you know, warp in behind behind enemy lines, cause major damage, and then get the hell out of there before they even knew anything, before they even knew what hit them. Right. But what I found particularly trouble, troubling about this scene when Discovery kind of... You know, it was a fantastic that Discovery appeared, like, right in orbit. Like, basically right in the sky yes. over the colony. It's wonderful. And the Klingon ships were attacking it. But what I found especially troubling about it was the fact that earlier in the episode, the Admiral had asked, had said to him, you know, the people in this colony have to be evacuated. So Discovery kind of warps in, starts, at, you know, drops a few torpedoes and warps out and destroys <laughs> everything, and they just leave them all there. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, weren't you supposed to, weren't you supposed to kind of get everybody out of there? Right. So That is very funny. I don't know what they were ultimately trying to do. Um... Well, I, I think, again, perhaps yeah. this shows us about Lorca. Lorca, he doesn't give a shit about evacuating people. Lorca Not wants to take out the Klingons. So, um, this to me calls into question 
you know, the morality of it all. Because it, it reminds me, it, there's a parallel between this and an episode of Voyager. I don't know if you've ever seen this episode. Uh, it's called, I'll just give a brief synopsis, it's called Equinox. It is the final episode of Season 5 where Voyager encounters another Federation starship in the Delta Quadrant, the USS Equinox. And Janeway, Captain Janeway finds out that the captain of that ship, Captain Ransom, is using these sort of strange trans-dimensional aliens. And their genetic makeup allows them to devise a, a way to travel very fast. Because Janeway points out that, you know, your ship is much smaller than mine. You know, you have a maximum warp, I believe, of like 0.6 or 0.7 or something. But you've covered more ground than Voyager has. So, how, like, how have you managed to get out here? So, you know, basically travel the same distance we have in a much shorter span of time. And she discovers this sort of, you know, deadly secret of what they've been doing. And that's sort of the moral dilemma here. And she's like, she's saying to him, you know, you're capturing and murdering innocent life forms just so you can get home a little, just so you can get home a little bit quicker. So in this sense, Lorca is, granted, he's not killing anything, but he's using a creature to kind of devise, you know, faster modes of travel. I mean, the creature is obviously not the reason. But it's able to accurately help them get to where they need right. to go. And and the the Ripper is clearly, like I said, being um, in distress, being harmed, being hurt right. in some way by doing this. Uh, we don't know about the spores and how what type of life that is and if they right. also are distressed by the experience. Right. I mean, it, it, and I think this sort of goes back to what we had said in the previous episode is, you know, by the time Voyager's lost in the Delta Quadrant where is this technology to kind of get them home? And it makes me wonder that if... Are we going to find out that this is harmful to the creature that Ripper is? And therefore, does Starfleet decide, we can't do... We have to outlaw this. We can't do this anymore. Mm, you know? Right. Maybe, is Ripper the only one left of his kind? So they, maybe they can't do it anymore? Right, right. Or something like that? Um, yeah. I think it's interesting that the first time we see it used is... Yeah. To defend innocent people. Right. I think we maybe are do that so we can get more on the side to support this in some way. Right. Because they're defending innocent people from right. attack. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to see when this starts to become used on the offensive instead of the defensive. Well, I'm wondering too, you know, as Burnham learns more about this creature, is she eventually going to get to the point where she says to Lorca... You can't do you. You can't do this anymore. You've got to stop doing this. It would appear so, and it's interesting that the very quality that Lorca likes about her is, mm. I feel, the same quality that's going to lead her to do something to save Ripper. She she will look at the situation, um, uh, read the situation, and take it all in, make a snap decision, and then do whatever it takes to do the right thing, right. Uh, at, even at great cost to herself. So I feel if given the choice between supporting Lorca's mission or um, ending this inhumane mm. treatment, I think she'll go for the ending the inhumane treatment. Well, it's interesting because as this, you know, as this episode develops, the crew, especially Tilly, you know, says, "We heard what you did. You know, you you helped rescue all. You helped save all those lives." So it almost feels like she's developing a reputation on the crew that everyone is beginning to like her more for what she did. But I feel like Burnham is saying, within herself, saying, "But I don't like what I did. This this feels this is wrong." Right. This you know? this perhaps feels more wrong to her than 
the action she took that got the her crew may be the taking first... a, the crew may be taking a liking to her, but she may feel like, but not for the right reasons. Right now, I wonder if she's the only one that is a noticing what's happening with Ripper, or b cares in any way. I don't know if you've seen any indication that anyone else is even aware. No, I mean, I, I think that you know, I, I think Stamets. Stamets is kind of on the same side that she is, but for different reasons. I don't think he's too in line with what they're doing to the creature. It's more like it's more about the spores and the and, you know his experiments and everything. Right. I don't know how much the crew. I wouldn't imagine that the rest of the crew know much about Ripper at all. That's true. It's pretty. I mean, very she was assigned specifically to figure out you know what it was that you know to use a, a cheesy phrase makes it tick. Hmm. That's true. And. So, but I feel like she inside has this internal conflict going on where she says, I don't, I don't feel like what I did was right. This doesn't feel right. Because she's getting to know the creature a lot more. And I feel like at some point she's going to want to stand up to Lorca and say, this is not, this is not a good idea. Yeah. You are, you are harming an innocent life form. And I think that it's significant that she's having these feelings, these conflicted feelings, and then who does she get a quote-unquote visit from um but her her mentor and former captain who it seems to be sort of the moral uh north star for her character and the person that she looks up to right. even what had happened even with that considered right and um i think that the message that she gets here that you know Philippa wants her to continue to explore the mysteries of the universe and mm. keep your eyes and heart always open. Right. So I think that that's sort of right. So the science for her keeping her eyes open, but her heart also follow her heart, follow her ethical uh, compass. Yeah. And I think that's really the message that she needs at this moment. And to- that, and that in an, in and of itself is classic Trek in my opinion. Definitely. You know, um, and I think, you know, some may say, well, you know, Roddenberry's spinning spinning in his grave or something like that, but like, <laughs> I've well, heard maybe, that maybe, maybe a not, lot. but like, yeah, I mean, but you could say that about some of the other shows too, but like, Deep Space Nine, he would have been spinning in his grave, that was war. The thing is, it's being presented differently. You know, in the other shows, it was, a lot of it was, you're, this is happening to another species rather than happening to us. You know, like the, the moral and ethical dilemma was our characters, ha- our Starfleet characters having it with an alien species, not oh. really between each other. Right. Right. But because, you know, in, in, in Roddenberry's mind, he wanted to portray Starfleet as humans as perfect. We don't have any drama. We don't have any conflict. So any sort of drama or conflict has to come from outside. Right, and I think that's one of the benefits of setting this when it's set. I feel yeah. that, um, same with Enterprise. I mean, Enterprise also had some um, similar type of dilemmas. Right. How much, but it's like, how did we get there? How militarized will Starfleet be? Right. And, you know, per- here's, a, here's a hot take. Um, perhaps that's why these shows are not set after Next Generation, because maybe the agreement is, well, humanity has figured things out. And everything is pretty smooth. Yeah, maybe so. There's no conflict there. Let's go back where there's still conflict. This one is sort of paving the way for the way they are in Next Generation sort of 80 years later. Yeah, I think so. Like, this is sort of... Because you have to... Yeah, I mean, 
and to your point, that's why I like Enterprise set where it is because it's like, yeah, how did we get from this to this? Like, what happened in between? Right, and I love that. Even visually, the crossovers with NASA and whatnot. Because it doesn't just happen overnight. Obviously. No, they didn't figure out warp, and then suddenly humanity and society became just yeah. and equitable. Right. And, you know, to make one more parallel, you know, Cisco was a was a war captain. And up until now, I would say, I mean, maybe up until now, the, the darkest episode of Trek was always was, was an episode of Deep Space Nine called In the Pale Moonlight. Oh, I love that episode. You know the one I'm talking about? I do. Where he has to, where they where they realize that the that, that the Federation is losing the war with the Dominion, mm-hmm. and but the Romulans haven't chosen a side yet, so they've got to somehow get the Romulans to join the war, and Cisco enlists the help of Garrick to kind of persuade or get some information about you know a Romulan senator, and then it turns out that Garrick wasn't gonna you know help him at all. Instead, he just bombed the he just bombed a shuttle. He, did his, he just kind of went rogue and did his own thing. But it ended up getting the Romulans to join the war on the Federation side. Mm-hmm. And what I love about that episode is that Cisco's making his log entry and he says, you know, that he's an accessory to murder. What he did was wrong. But he's like, you know, it's a small price to pay for the safety of the Alpha Quadrant. Um, and he's like, I can learn to live with it. He goes, because I can live with it. Yeah. No, I can live with it. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I do see, I mean, we haven't seen Lorca. Maybe Lorca's doing that in his own logs off screen. I don't know. We don't get any sense but from we his don't get. So we far. don't get any sense of that. That Lorca's just doing it. He has no second thoughts, no regrets. This is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody is opposing me. Yeah, interestingly, yeah. an ally that both of those characters might have in this would be Spock. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Um because that, this is definitely a situation where the, that exact um, utilitarian rule is coming into play. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think, again, you know, in Cisco's quote, a guilty, a guilty conscience is a small price to pay for the safety of the Alpha Quadrant. I mean, that, again, in, in and of itself, is the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Right. You know, I may have been an accessory of killing one person, but look at how much it helped... Look at how many people. Look at how many people that may have stopped, prevented from getting killed. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, with Cisco, I mean, you have the one incident. Yeah. I feel like with Lorca, we it's just a pattern of behavior. Mm. Um, so it will be interesting to see if he does have another side as we get to know him more. Right. I mean, Cisco as a war captain didn't really struggle. I don't think too much with any moral ethical dilemmas. Like there was nothing he seemed to be fighting with himself to do. No, cut that episode. And even in that yeah. episode, as you said, he did resign himself pretty quickly to the fact that... But what he says in that episode that I love is, um, because they, they deceived the Romulan senator, and the senator finds out about it, and remember Cisco says, you know, Renak was furious. But I can't say that I blamed him. I'd have reacted the same way. Like, Cisco can at least see it from his point, from, from the other guy's point of view, which is fantastic. Right, that's yeah. true. That's, that is true. Um, but, yeah... Lorca, to me, is doing all of this. He has no regrets about it. Nobody's opposing him. I think people may be afraid to oppose him. You know, I got that sense when he was playing the distress call throughout the ship. You saw people just sort of, like, reacting like, oh, my God, I don't want to be hearing this. But... Yes. And and there's been multiple characters have mentioned that Lorca always gets what he wants. Yeah. 
I think that the even Landry said to her said to Burnham, Lork is on the warpath. Yeah, Lork is on the warpath. Lork yeah. always gets what he wants. Yeah, um, it's like Lork is a, a very angry CEO, and his company's not where it needs to be, and he's going to be blaming everybody else because we can't get there just yet. Yeah, we're and you're going to be setting to. impossible yeah. um, quotas and impossible goals, yeah. and just expecting people to figure it out. So for me, scale of one to ten, I'm giving it a nine. Uh, I just think that the show is getting is getting better and better every week. Yeah, yeah, I, I would definitely give it a um, a really like it, and I I do think it's it's just it's I think it's kind of steady from last time, but mm. I like where it is. It's getting to a very intriguing spot, and as we will, you know. As we see in the trailer for next week, um, Lorca gets captured by the Klingons. So we'll see if that does anything uh, to his character. Right, so Lorca yeah. gets captured by the Klingons and, and is in their prison and meets... Um, Mr. Harry Mudd. Mr. Harry Mudd. Yeah. Which, which is, you told fun. me you watched really quick. You watched uh, Mudd's Women the other night. I did. Did, I did. you watch it looking for many, any sort of hint? Um, I just maybe... wanted to re- yeah. re- reacquaint myself with uh, Mr. Mudd. Yeah. And it's he's interesting. A, he's in the animated series too, by the way. Uh, cool. Yeah. He's yeah, he's a sleazy guy. Yeah. Clearly, um, he's a sort of a pimp slash con artist mm-hmm. slash uh, yeah. He's he's so it's gonna be very interesting to see um, what happens between Lorca and Mud. It's an odd. He's an odd character to bring back. Right, it's funny because we've heard rumblings about him being in one of the yeah. Abrams verse films, also. And he so. was gonna. They, there was a time where they wanted him actually to be on the Next Generation. Really? Yeah. Why? I don't know. But like when they announced that Harry Mudd's gonna be on, I thought, how does he fit into this? Right. So, how does he fit into all of this? Right, and I like yeah. the fact that given the circumstances, yeah. Um, I'm intrigued to see how he's going to fit into it because. Uh, if he just showed up on the ship with a bunch of ladies, that would be really silly. It is it's just to talk about Mud's women for a second. It is interesting that talking about how sixties it is. There is this idea that the power of seduction is a mm. superpower that people can have. Khan had it, yeah, and it was very similar to the women. The, when women saw Khan, they looked and they just were instantly mesmerized by mm-hmm. his uh, hunkiness. Well, um, one thing I'm hoping for is because you didn't watch the other episode, did you? No, I'm a, not yet. I've seen it, but so not a long time. So I'm, I'm hoping that um, as we see Harry Mudd in Discovery, we will see his wife that he built the the android based off of Stella. Oh, the one who the member the one who she would yell at him. He would turn the he would turn her on and he would yet she would yell at him. Yeah, and he would just tell her to shut up and she would be quiet. Yeah, I so wonder, I'm hoping we get to see her on Discovery yeah. at some point. I wonder if we're going to see Mud outside of prison at all. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, is it just going to be you know, is it going to be a one shot? I have no idea. And and I wonder yeah. what I could see Lorca and Mud actually getting along. If, Lorca, if they weren't going after each other. I bet Mud is going to have information that Lorca needs. And Lorca's going to somehow yeah. try to use him to to get, you know. I bet okay. he's going to be an asset to Lorca somehow. I can see him also be using his um, con artist skills to mm-hmm. somehow get them out of prison. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So then he might owe him a debt of gratitude and bring him on to discover. I bet you he's one of these guys who's, like, been in and out of Klingon prisons, like, just... All, o- I bet o- every species over and prison. O- over, or just various prisons, just over and over again. 
Yeah, it yeah. makes sense because they did in in Mud's Women. They pulled up his record, and he had all these infractions and time in jail. So you think? Oh, so they, there's your discovery connection right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Why was he going under a fake name? In Mud's Women. Oh, that's right, Leo Walsh. He went by Leo yeah. Walsh. So I wonder. Oh, I wonder if they're going to call him Leo Walsh in this one, <laughs> right? Um, but yeah, it's going to be really interesting, and, and we'll see uh, what kind of role he plays. Next week, we will review, well, not review, but we will discuss um, episode five called Choose Your Pain. Choose Your Pain. That is set to air on October 15th, 2017. That, just by name, that invokes, like, Star Trek V. I don't need my, I don't want my pain taken away. I need my pain. Yeah, what I expect yeah. is that pain's going to either be like, well, you can either have the pain of the guilt for violating your ethics, or you can have the pain of losing this war. Or you can have the guilt for being the shit, having the shit kicked out of your way in a clean up prison. Oh, that's true too. Or is Harry Mudd a pain? Yeah. Now you gotta deal with this guy. Choose your pain in the ass. So that is on the docket for next time. We're done. Yes. Alright, until next time.